All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and um, this week we are finishing up our study in the little book of Philemon. So grab your Bibles. Open up to Philemon. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the floor around you. We have them scattered throughout the room. Uh, In our Bibles, you're going to be going to page 1000, and um, we're going to be looking at this little letter. Now, again, to review, this, this is a personal letter from Paul, the Apostle Paul, to Philemon. Philemon is uh, a wealthy landowner uh, who became a believer under uh, Paul's ministry, um, probably about four or five years previous, um, and the church now met in his home. And so he was one of the leaders in the church. The church met in his home, his wife, Apphia, um, and, and uh, they had a servant uh, named Onesimus who uh, stole from them. Um, who kind of made his way into their trusted inner circle, uh, stole from them, fled, uh, ended up running into Paul about a thousand miles away in the city of Rome, became a believer there uh, after hearing the gospel, and uh, it changed his life. And now he is carrying this letter back with him to Philemon's house, um, and it's a mess, right? It's a mess. We've, we've got uh, betrayal, a broken trust, relationships all over the place. Um, so Philemon and Apphi are going to have to learn how to relate to Onesimus now, a believer in Christ, um, the church in their home, um, Archippus, their, their son and fellow worker, and uh, the fellow, the, the, the other servants. Um, anyway, so let's take a look at the letter, okay? Let's take a look at the letter, and then we will continue unpacking it. All right, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. 
All right, this is our last week in this little book. I've actually had a lot of fun um, digging into it and teaching it, um, which is, I've gotten some feedback, which has been fun. People being like, I didn't even know that letter was in the Bible. Um, and I think it might be one of my favorites now. And I, I love to hear that. Um, I have always loved this, this little letter because it contains such powerful insight into the workings of the gospel, right? We unpacked this, uh, this diagram and we've been looking at it on a weekly basis because I think what we see here is really di- the dynamic flow of the gospel in our lives, right? We receive grace from God, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God in Jesus, right? Um, God loves us and he freely gives us all the blessings that we could have never earned, but Christ did on our behalf, right? And that produces within us a sense of gratitude that, that makes us thankful. When we, when we receive something unexpected, when we get a blessing we weren't expecting for and honestly couldn't even, ex, you know, we knew we didn't deserve it, didn't expect it, that produces within us a gratitude. And that gratitude has a freeing power on our souls. It moves us into the flow of generosity, It moves us into sharing grace. As we receive grace, it produces a grateful heart that then moves in sharing grace, which is why uh, Christians throughout the ages, if there's been a genuine movement of the gospel, have been known for financial generosity and relational generosity and time generosity. They are people who give of themselves because they've been given so much, right? And as we move deeply into the movement of generosity, it deepens our experience of grace. As we move into the flow of generosity and we move into that place of self-sacrifice and of giving and of sharing, it deepens our experience of grace, which only deepens our experience of gratitude and moves us more deeply into generosity. It is this beautiful cycle of how the love of God works within us to free us of love for ourselves, of self-absorption and self-focus and into the freedom of who He is, right? Grace is the most powerful force in the world. It is it can change the human heart, right? I mean, there are a lot of powers out there that can form, can, can, can conform human behavior, but grace has the actual power to, to transform the human heart. And, and Paul trusted this power. And so when he sent Onesimus back into this mess, into this hornet's nest, he trusted him with this little letter, but it wasn't his, his eloquence that he was trusting. It was the power of grace. He was trusting that this little letter would open up grace in these messy relationships so that people could experience um, forgiveness and freedom and joy. I've had a lot of people ask me, so what ended up happening to Onesimus? And as we wrap up our study this morning, it's worth considering. We don't know exactly. Um, You know, we don't have a ton of very, very detailed records of what took place in the first century. Um, Ignatius, writing in about 110 AD, uh, does mention a guy named Onesimus, and he was a leader in the Ephesian church, an elder in the Ephesian church, um, potentially even the lead elder um, in, in the Ephesian church. We don't know whether this is the same Onesimus. The name Onesimus means useful. It was a common name for people that were born in slavery. Um, and, and obviously it has a lot of word plays in our letter where Paul is talking about how he used to know, not be useful, but now he is useful both to you and to me. It is possible, and many people think that Onesimus was uh, not only set free from his servitude, uh, but became a leader in the church and potentially a leader in the Ephesian church. If that was true, and Onesimus was a young man at the writing of the time of this letter, he could have been anywhere uh, 65 to 80 years old at the time that, 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 that he was mentioned as a leader in Ephesus. We can't guarantee that. We don't know that. But we can pretty much guess that it ended well. You know why? Because we have this letter. 
This was never intended to be a circular letter. This wasn't the kind of letter that was sent to a church and then copied and then sent to a lot of other churches. This was a personal letter from Paul to Philemon carried by Onesimus. The only reason we would have this letter today is because somebody kept it and somebody treasured it and somebody shared it with people they loved. And as they shared it, which I think was Onesimus, and it became part of his story, and other people started reading it and seeing in it the power of the gospel. It was copied and shared. Now, of course, we know the Holy Spirit was part of that. The, the Spirit of God protected the documents of the, of the New Testament um, and, and ultimately allowed us to have this collection of documents that we call the Bible. But uh, from a very simple, very pragmatic perspective, this letter still exists. And there's only one reason it would. And that's if Onesimus kept it, saved it, treasured it, shared it. Um, which tells us, uh, with very good evidence, that, um, that Onesimus had a very uh, a good end. Now, we've got to be careful with that, um, because his good end did end up, if, according, if church tradition is correct, uh, in martyrdom. Like many of the other early church leaders, uh, he had the privilege of, of sacrificing his life to the testimony of Christ. And I don't think he resented that at all, because his freedom from slavery was into a bond-servanthood to Christ. And he lived his life for the glory of God. Now, we've been mining this little letter for principles that will ultimately help us live in messy relationships, because that pretty much describes our lives, right? <laughs> messy relationships. I mean, that's just what we have around us. That's what we all do, because we live up in a, in a jacked up world where people are selfish, we're selfish, people do dumb things, people do selfish things, and we do too. And as a result, things get messy. And so here are the principles that we've mined out of this letter so far. Just want to review them with you. First of all, if you want to really forgive someone who has hurt you, if you really want to live in grace with someone who has hurt you, first of all, you need to recognize it's not an act of the will, but a response to grace, right? It's not something you just choose to do. If you try to force yourself to forgive someone, if you try to make it an act of the will, you will fail. You will try and you will try and you will try and you will not succeed, right? The only time your heart will genuinely be freed to forgive is if it has been freed as a response to grace, we need to go deep into the grace we've received so that we can become grateful and out of that gratitude become generous. And that generosity is what we call forgiveness. As we do the second thing, which is releasing the debt, right? If we really want to forgive, it's not about reducing the pain or the discomfort. It's about releasing the debt, right? If somebody has hurt us, first impulse is to reduce the discomfort, right? To get separation, to stop thinking about it, to eliminate everything that might remind us of it. The problem is you can never reduce the pain enough that will actually produce forgiveness. It won't. You might get to a point where you don't think about it as often, but it's not going to free your heart. To free your heart, you have to actually release the debt. You have to say, "It, it is not my debt to collect, it's God's. It is not my job to sit in the, in the debt collector's seat or the judge's seat over that person and to hold them accountable. I have to release that position to God. I have to release the debt, right? And if we're going to do that, that means we have to release our desire to control the situation. And instead, we have to trust God with our suffering, right? We have to release. When, when we hurt, when someone hurts us, one of the first things we try to do is, is ultimately try to control the situation because we think in controlling the situation, somehow we can, we can um, make mastery, right? We hate being out of control. We hate being victims, right? And we feel like victims because we were out of control. Somebody else took control and used that control in a way that was, was harmful to us, right? 
So we have to reduce that urge to try to become God, to take control of the situation, and instead trust God with our suffering, knowing that he's going to tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. And one of the practical ways that we do that is by making a practice of gratitude, right? Because there's only two things we can do with pain. We're going to turn to grumbling or we're going to turn to gratitude, right? And grumbling is simply the, 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 the simmering in the pain. It is just rehearsing and retelling and reliving the very thing we want to forget. And what it does is it just simmers us down into bitterness, right? And instead, we need to make practice for gratitude. We need to remind ourselves of what we've been given. We need to focus on the grace of God. We need to, we need to give thanks to God for who He is and what He's done. We need to give thanks for the many, many blessings that are around us on a daily basis because we're either going to be moving into the joy of gratitude or into the bitterness of grumbling, right? And how we deal with our pain is ultimately going to direct the direction uh, that we take with that. Now, this week, we're going to be looking at really the most foundational principle We've been hitting on it every week in one way or another, and this week I just want to really focus on it, and this is this. If you want to grow in forgiveness, you need to grow in community. If you want to grow in forgiveness, you need to grow in community. Community is not optional if you genuinely want to move into the grace of forgiveness. Now, the idea of community has been central to Christianity from its very beginning. Right? Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. That, that, was, a, that was the hallmark of, of how you would know people who were genuinely recipients of grace and moving out into the power of gratitude. It was the hallmark. It was a group of people sharing grace, right? In Acts 2, when it describes the early church, there are five core values, if you want to put it that way. There are the four, five core values of our church. And one of the central ones of those, of those is, is community, right? Now, this idea of community... Sometimes in the old school, it was called fellowship. It comes from this Greek word, koinonia. Now, the, the central meaning of the word koinonia is sharing. At the heart of our idea or the meaning of community is this idea of sharing. Now, I googled community because that's what you do uh, when you want a definition, right? You don't open up a dictionary anymore. You Google something. So I googled uh, community, and Google very helpfully gave me a definition. It said that it is a sense of commonality from living in the same place or having similar characteristics. Community is, is this, in other words, a sense of affinity that you have with people because you live in a, in a common place or you share certain interests, right? So, so people in your neighborhood may have a sense of community or affinity because you live on the same block or, or, or uh, people that are Cardinals fans share an affinity, right? Because you, you share a, a con- common madness, right? Um, people that, that, that was a joke. Um, you're like, dude, don't insult my madness. Um, here's the thing, that, that is an affinity description, right? Because what ends up happening is we, we share with people what we share in common with people. Biblical community is, is really very different. Um, and really something much deeper, because it's something that can bond people together who really have no affinity. In other words, there's a commonality in the faith. There's something that is much deeper than the surface level of where I live, or this color of my skin, or, or the sports team I root for, or, or, or how I identify myself uh, in a, in a, in a uh, sociological way, right? Because what we share is much deeper than our neighborhood, or our team, or our fondness for food, or, or our pet social cause, or whatever it is. Right? What we share is a common faith. What we share is, is a common Savior. Not just a common religion. Right? Not talking about religion. 
right? Not, not talking about a name or a label. I'm talking about a, a common love for a Savior who loved us. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of people who are religious. Their hearts aren't undone by grace. They've really never tasted the love of God. I'm talking about people that have really begun the process of being undone by grace. They know the love of God and that love is is starting to work on their heart in beautiful ways. And when we come in contact with other people who love that same Savior, we have more in common with them than we have apart. And that's why in a church like ours, we, we have a lot of, of interesting diversity, right? We have, we have social progressives and, and social conservatives, right, sitting at the same table. People that in the upcoming election are going to be voting for very different people. We have, we have people that are, that are like all over the map as far as where, where their passions take them, right? We, we live in southern Illinois, which means we have both Cards and Cubs fan in the same room, right? That happens. And they're sitting in the same community groups, and they're, they're worshiping the, the same Savior, right? Because what bonds us is deeper than what separates us. We're not talking about affinity. We're talking about community. Now, the way we describe this around here, the simple way we put it is this. True community is knowing and being known, loving and being loved. It is sharing life. And we call people to community continually. It is moving into the community of faith where you are where you're knowing and are known, where you are loving and being loved. It's way more than showing up on a Sunday and shaking someone's hand. It's way more than just knowing somebody's name and sharing a cup of coffee. It means actually inviting people in to your life. Now, we live in the Facebook generation, which means we've actually become pretty good at being transparent. In other words, there's this value uh, 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 on Facebook and on social media where we want to look real. And so what ends up happening is, is we kind of become transparent in a sense where it's look but don't touch. Genuine community means not just look but touch. Like you can not only know me, but you can actually um, do life with me, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not just going to let you look in from the outside, but then still stay guarded and separate and, and disconnected. Uh, I'm actually going to invite you in to my life, allow you to know my pain and my joy, and to walk with me through these things, right? And this is ultimately where Paul goes in the climactic appeal of his letter in verses 17 and 18, right? In 17 and 18, where Paul says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If you consider me his or your partner. That word partner is koinonia. It's that word for community. In other words, partner. Think about what a partner is. It's somebody who shares a common purpose with you, right? A a common, they share with you a common love and a common motivation and and a common goal, right? And that word koinonia sums that up. What he's saying is if you share community with me, if you share love with me, if you share affection with me, if you share purpose with me, extend that grace to Onesimus. If you love me, love him. If you share commonality with me, you need to share it with him. See, this is one of the key ways community helps us to forgive by calling each other to the common place of grace. Last week, one of the points that I made was to ultimately keep bitter people at arm's length. We talked about how much people influence us and bitter people um, to have a way of, of just planting bitterness in our hearts and, in fact, magnifying the bitterness that's already in our hearts. And so we talked about how we need to, we need to in, in a sense, love them, but love them from a distance, right? We want people close to us, people who, close to us who are going to provoke grace, 
and provoke love, right? And speak life to us because bitterness is catching and so is is grace as believers in Christ. So instead, we need to surround ourselves with people who provoke us um, to love and to grace. And that's what Paul's doing in this passage. Paul isn't just pointing to Christ. Paul's acting like Christ, right? What he's saying is, look, I'll be Onesimus's substitute. I'll pay Onesimus's debt. He's subtly reminding Philemon that you are Onesimus too because you owed a debt that had to be paid for you. You owed a debt you couldn't pay and Jesus had to pay that debt for you, right? You're Onesimus, we all are because we needed Jesus to pay our debt. We needed him to take our place and and to die for our sin. We needed him to suffer so we could be blessed. And Paul's offering to do that very thing to help Philemon in the process of forgiveness. See, Paul is embodying gospel love, not just talking about gospel love, but actually embodying gospel love and saying, look, I will be the substitute. I will absorb the pain. And he provokes grace in Philemon's heart by leading in generosity. About three years ago, um, I helped my daughter buy her first car. She had worked very hard for, for a number of years and saved up her money. Um, and uh, she was excited about having her own car. In fact, she was determined to buy her own car and have her own car. She's very independent. And, and so um, I got to help her in that process. And so we, we looked for cars and, and, and um, we looked at lots and looked on Craigslist. And finally, we found a little car on Craigslist. It was a little Honda Civic. Um, she only had about $4,000 to work with, which meant that we really had to be in the bottom end of, of what was available and very selective. And we found this little car. It was older. Um, it wasn't incredibly cute. The paint was not real great, but, uh, it seemed to me really mechanically sound and, and, um, uh, well-kept decent mileage. So we met the guy down in South city and, and, um, he seemed like a nice guy. Um, he had a kid and, and, and just seemed like a young guy who uh, had gotten this car from uh, a relative. They drove it for a while, and, and now they were looking to sell it, and, and we test drove it. And, and I liked it. I liked it. So I advised her to buy it. We bought it. And um, about 100 miles out, find out that um, they had reset the check engine light um, so that as a buyer, I wouldn't know that it was on. Uh, because you can reset those things. And, and so took it in, come to find out the catalytic converter is shot, which is part of the exhaust system. Uh, and while we're looking at it, come to find out they had actually taped up the muffler with muffler tape, which is a way to kill the sound, but it doesn't fix the problem because the muffler tape ends up burning. And then so within 100 miles, her car is, is not only a check engine light, but very loud um, and stinky. And so um, we we get some prices. We, we have a friend who is a mechanic and um, he was willing to do work at a discount rate, but it was still going to cost us about $1,000 to have the entire exhaust replaced. That made me mad. I hate to lose. I hate to be swindled. I hate, like, so I'm running in my head. I'm like reliving the test drive, right? Like, oh, I heard that sound, but in the moment I didn't notice it right? I saw that look in his eye, but, but in the moment I didn't. So I'm like reliving it and I'm thinking through, man, I, I should have done this. And I'm thinking, man, I'll drive through South City till I find this guy. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, I am going to find this guy and he is going to pay for these repairs or he's going to give us the money back. And, and um, I was ticked. Hmm. I was ticked. And so what ended up happening when I get angry is I tend to talk about it and, and that's grumbling, right? I'm just kind of grumbling. And, and I was at a, at a guy's night and, and we were all hanging out. And, um, and one of the guys, after he heard the story, was like, hey man, that, that really, um, I was, that was wrong. I'm sorry that you suffered that. I'm like, you're right, man. It was wrong. Let's go kill this guy. He's like, no, I'll tell you what, what, how about, how about I pay for the repairs? which I didn't have the money to do and my daughter didn't have the money to do. I was like, what? He's like, how about, how about I, can I just give you $1,000? Will that cover it? I'm like, yeah. You know, a bit of my pride is like, no. But it's my daughter. I, I can't afford it. You know, I got enough grace worked into my heart that occasionally I can, all right, I'm, thanks, man. Thanks. So I, I, he gave us the money. We got the car fixed. About a month later, a week later, a day later, I don't remember. I'm back in my head beating this guy. You know? And as I'm doing that in my head, the Lord reminds me, hey, the debt's been paid, man. Are you still angry? I'm like, yeah, but the, the debt's been paid. The car's been fixed, but, but he still robbed me. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he robbed me of some dignity. He robbed me of some self-respect. He, he robbed me of, of like, he just, he, I feel a little humiliated by what he did, right? And the Lord's like, yeah, but, but didn't I take care of that? Didn't, didn't I pay for that? Didn't I even give you the money to fix it? I'm like, yeah, you did. You did. The Lord's like, really? I took care of this debt and you still want to hold it over that guy? So instead of complaining about him, I started praying for him. And an amazing thing happens in your heart when, when you start praying for someone. Um, the Lord started filling in the gaps, not with doubt and mistrust and anger and bitterness and resentment, but actually with fondness, because I started seeing in this guy elements of myself long ago. And I don't know him. I don't know his story but I start filling in the gaps. We all have to fill in the gaps. And, and instead of filling in the gaps with maliciousness and anger and bitterness, I started filling in the gaps with where he needed Christ. And it gave me a fondness for him as I prayed for him. And, and I don't know what happened to him. I don't know the end of his story. He has no idea, but I'm praying for him. I am praying that God will bless him, that God will, will lead him in the gospel to a knowledge of how much he is loved and how free he can be right? And in praying for him, listen to this, I set not him free, but me. You see what I'm saying? Like, like that bitterness is gone, right? That I'm no longer enslaved or chained to the hurt that I suffered. How can I hold on to a debt that's been paid? So that's what's happening. Paul is pushing Philemon and saying, look, do you love me? Have you been blessed by me? Then receive the one I love. Your debt has been paid, man. He's encouraging him. He's provoking him. Now, release the debt that he owes you. Take the grace you've received and give it to Onesimus, the one who has wronged you, right? And what Paul is calling for here is absolutely full reconciliation. And in fact, he's pretty much forcing it. He's like, look, I'm going to send him back to your house, right? He's the one going to be carrying the letter. Knock, knock, knock. Here I am. Read the letter, right? Now, let's figure out how this works. See, Paul is saying, look, 
Forgiveness leads to reconciliation. Reconciliation is restored relationship. Onesimus broke your trust. He stole from you. He humiliated you in public. He, your name, you know, your neighbors are, are going to be looking at this. They're going to be shaking their heads at you. The fellow servants are going to lose respect for you. I understand all of that. But grace is greater. And if you're going to forgive him, that means you need to open the door to reconciliation with him. Forgiveness always opens the door for restored relationship. Always. You're like, yeah, but, but I want to forgive, but not open that door, right? Can't I just love somebody and not like them? Can't I be like, I forgive you, but I never want to see you? Can't I go there? Do you realize what's going on right there? What you're doing is you're justifying holding on to the bitterness in your soul. What you're saying is, I really love my bitterness and I don't want to let it go. And I'm going to justify it by saying, well, I forgive him. I release the debt, but I'm not going to like him because he doesn't, what, deserve to be liked, right? Forgiveness always opens the door for reconciliation. If it doesn't, this is what I want you to hear. You're, you're, you're treasuring poison in your soul. You're treasuring bitterness. And you think of it as justice, but it's not. It's the very thing that will keep on eating away at your joy and your contentment and your wholeness. If you have truly forgiven, if you have truly forgiven, you will be free to move back into relationship. You will be free to release them from what they did and who they were. This is always the goal of forgiveness. But while forgiveness always creates the potential for reconciliation, it's not always the reality of what happens. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two separate things. Forgiveness always opens the door to reconciliation. It does not always lead to reconciliation. Because you know what's required for reconciliation? Repentance. I can forgive someone for how they've hurt me. But in order to move back into full relationship with them, they need to repent. They need to see how the gospel enlightens their actions. They need to see how they abused or wronged or robbed from me. And in grace, they need to move back toward me in the forgiveness of Christ and the same forgiveness I'm offering them. That's what's happening here, right? Onesimus saw the wrong of his actions. He has, he has believed in Christ. He is moving in grace. He has received the forgiveness of God, and he is ready to move back toward Philemon in this new relationship, re-centered on grace, no longer who he was or what he did, but now defined by Christ and what Christ has done. And so he's moving in the same generosity of Christ that moves Philemon. When you have two people moving together in that kind of grace and generosity, it sets the stage for reconciliation. But when you have somebody who is unrepentant, sometimes the restoration of relationship is impossible. While forgiveness always can lead to reconciliation, it doesn't mean that it always will or even that it should. See, we're always told to forgive, but we're not always told to reconcile. Forgiveness releases the debt of past wrong. Forgiveness even releases the debt of future wrong. 
right? Jesus says, how much am I to forgive? The disciples are like, what, seven times? He's like, no, 70 times seven, right? Forgiveness is, is this sense in which I release you. I will not be your judge. That is not my job. I will not harbor bitterness in my soul. I will let God be God. I will trust him with my suffering. I will release, not reduce. I will, I will follow these principles, right? So forgiveness is releasing the debt, but it doesn't require us to become codependent victims in a relationship. We forgive, they repent, we move toward reconciliation. We forgive, they don't repent. We move forward wisely and carefully, both with our soul and with that relationship. If they continue to be unrepentant, if they continue to be abusive or liars or thieves or unrepentant takers, we should love them and ourselves enough not to allow them to continue in that abuse. When the offender responds in repentance like Onesimus, restored trust and relationship results. But if they respond to continued abuse, we stay in a position of grace. We continue to invite to relationship, but we recognize that invitation requires repentance. There was a young woman who was in an abusive relationship. Her husband was a bully. He was verbally and occasionally physically threatening and abusive toward her. The woman in grace, forgave him, right? He came and he apologized and it was all tears and, 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 and she was a believer and in grace, she forgave him. But the pattern of behavior continued. So while he had regret, he didn't have repentance. He regretted what he did, but, but the Bible says worldly regret leads to sorrow. Godly repentance or, or godly sorrow leads to repentance, right? We know godly repentance because it actually leads to a changed heart. Godly repentance comes from an experience of grace, and grace changes our hearts. When somebody just regrets what they've done, they repeat what they've done because they're not really willing to deal with the real hard issues. They're not really willing to repent of the deeper uh, areas in which they're running from God and not dealing with things in the presence of God, right? And so in this situation, she needed to get out of there, Right? So this woman in grace forgave him, but she needed um, to get out of there. Until he repents, he's not safe. Until he repents, there can be forgiveness, but there, there can't be full reconciliation. So we went and we moved her out. We went in the middle of the day when he wasn't there because we wanted to avoid conflict. We didn't want her to be lashed out at. And, and, and we moved her out and we surrounded her, her with people who would love her and walk with her and know her because she was going to be facing all kinds of emotional challenges, guilt and shame. And, and, and she needed people around her that were going to speak grace and provoke her to, to remind her how much she's loved in Christ and how beautiful she is in Christ and, and how secure she is in Christ, even though her emotions were full of turmoil at the, the craziness of this situation. See, we're always to forgive, but reconciliation is dependent not just on our forgiveness, but their repentance. So in offering to pay Onesimus' debt, what Paul is doing is he's vouching for Onesimus' repentance. He's saying, look, I know this guy's repented, and I'm vouching for him. I'm sending him back to you as one who has repented and, and won't do it again, right? Or <laughs> if there's a slip up, it's not a... It's not 
reflection of an unrepentant heart, but of somebody who's learning to repent, right? Somebody who's repentant isn't somebody who's perfect, but it is somebody who is fighting for grace in their life, and that grace is evident in their life. I'm going to put this out. There are times when somebody is fighting for repentance and there still needs to be separation until they grow to a point where they're no longer abusive or hurtful. There are times when we need to create separation to allow repentance to mature. And in that process, when we believe that full restoration can be uh, a healthy thing, God-honoring, we pursue it. See, forgiveness always opens the door to, to reconciliation. It doesn't always guarantee it. So Paul's encouraging him, look, forgive him, receive him, love him. You got to know Philemon's heart in the situation was guarded. Philemon's like, wait a minute, this is the guy that stole from me. This is the guy that violated my trust. This is the guy that, that wheedled his way in and deceived me and my family and, and has created so much turmoil in my home. And Paul is saying, look, that, that stuff, that's not what defines the future of this relationship. He's believed in Jesus. He has received grace. He has repented. You've believed in Jesus. You've received grace. You have repented. Let that be the commonality that brings you together instead of the woundedness that drives you apart. You have more in common in Christ than you have that separates you because of all this other stuff. Community is a more powerful draw together. Genuine, spiritual, grace-filled community is a stronger draw than pain is a repellent. So be good community and receive him. Now let me ask something. Do you think Philemon took the money that Paul's offering? Paul's like, look, I'll pay his debt. You think Philemon took him up on that offer? We don't know, but I'm guessing not, right? Paul's an old man imprisoned in Rome, completely dependent on others to take care of him. And I have no doubt he would have gotten the money together to pay off that debt had Philemon called it in. I don't think he did. You know why? Because the real debt wasn't money. It was pain. The real debt was emotional. Betrayal, loss of trust, loss of what can't be repaid. And you know what repays that kind of debt? Not money. Love. Love is what repays that kind of debt. See, when my friend paid for me to fix my daughter's car, he paid the other guy's debt the financial debt that he really morally owed to me because of his deception. But he did a lot more than that. You know what he did? He communicated to me, I love you. His generosity spoke to my heart and it communicated love. It was a reminder to me that not only did my friend love me, but God loved me through my friend. God had freed his heart to a place of generosity where I received that generosity, right? Even when others wrong me, it is a reminder that, that someone is for me. He reminded me that I stand in grace. And as I was reminded that I stood in grace, it freed my heart to gratitude and generosity. Right? The real debt wasn't financial. The real debt was the woundedness. Sometimes you're the one that needs to be reminded, and God will do that. Like in this situation, God reminded me. Right? Sometimes you're the one that needs to do the reminding. Sometimes you need to be that good friend that becomes the presence of the gospel in the life of someone else where you say, I will absorb their debt so you can be freed to gratitude and generosity. See, sometimes God doesn't want to bless you with the grace of receiving. Sometimes he wants to bless you with the grace of giving. 
And this is the dynamic beauty of true community. It is a continuous exchange in the currency of love, of knowing and being known, loving and being loved, of, of, of giving of yourself so that someone else might be enriched and receiving in yourself what someone else gives so that you might be enriched. It, it, is, it is the true currency of what is truly valuable. And grace grows as it is given. Grace was never given to us to simply hold as a, as a personal treasure hidden away. Grace grows as it is given. And as we move into community and we give and receive grace, our experience of that grace is deepened. And, and that experience of community uncovers hidden beauties in our common faith and our experience of grace. I'm telling you something, if you're not in community, you are missing out on the best part of your faith. If you're not moving into genuine community, I'm telling you, you are missing out on, on many of the beautiful treasures of grace. You simply cannot uncover the beauty of the gospel alone. Because grace is relational in its very character. It requires relationship. What is grace without relationship? It requires the giving and receiving of knowing and being known, of loving and being loved. You guys, as we wrap up this letter, I want to go back to the key verse in this letter, and that's verse 6. Because I think this is really a good way to wrap up this central idea. In this verse, at the very beginning of the letter, Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective to the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. It's a very convoluted sentence, a lot of ideas here. Um, and I think a lot of people read over it and totally miss what's going on here. And, and we've covered this, but as we, as we come to a close, I, I just want to unpack this once again and let it sit on our hearts. So take a look at the phrases. I pray that the sharing of your faith, that's koinonia. That's what the word is, koinonia, that sharing of life on life, of, of knowing and being known and loving and being loved, that the sharing of that commonality of grace, right? That common ground of faith in Christ, intentionally doing life with others who also have that faith. This common ground for all those who believe in Jesus and share grace does something, right? Look at the next phrase. It may become effective, what Paul is saying is that true experience of community does something that nothing else can do. Community, real community, has the power to cause an effect. What's the effect? It is the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. You guys, there are good things that are in you that come from the gospel that you don't know about yet. You haven't experienced them yet. There are treasures buried in the Christian experience that you simply have not seen. See, in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, you have all the blessings of Christ. So Ephesians tells us we're already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. You have been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have all of the riches of Christ, but you are not experiencing all of those riches. Right? You have them but they have to be discovered. Community becomes effective to the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. In other words, it is through community that we discover the greatest blessings of the gospel. 
True community has the power to give us experiential knowledge of the gospel. Hope, love, joy, freedom, contentment, they're all ours in Christ. But we're not all experiencing them to the same degree. That experience can be deepened by pushing in to genuine biblical community. And we grow in the discovery of the experience of the blessings that we've been given. Community is the secret key that unlocks the treasure chest of a deeper experience in Christ. And Paul wraps up his thought by explaining why we've been blessed. It's for the sake of Christ. See, God doesn't exist for our good. (laughs) He's the all-glorious one. He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. He is the glorious center, not us. But he loves us and wants us to live in the overflow of his goodness. And when God gets his glory in our lives, we get our joy. So catch what Paul is saying here. Forgiveness is good for you, but forgiveness is not primarily for you. Forgiveness will set your heart free from bitterness, but that's not the primary reason we forgive. The primary reason we forgive is because we have a glorious God who forgives. And who are we not to? When we act like Christ, God gets the glory. When we are shaped in our character to become more like Jesus, God gets the glory and we get our joy. The primary good is not our good. The primary good is his glory, but we get our good as we pursue God's glory. So Paul's saying, look, I know this is going to be hard. I know I'm sending Onesimus back into a mess. I know I'm asking a lot of you, but I know this is the path for growth. This is the path that is before you. And you're going to have to learn how to walk it and fight for what truly gives life. It's going to be challenging You guys, I'm telling you, I know because I've walked this path not only in my own heart, but but with many, many others. As they start coming in and they're like, man, I kind of like the teaching of the church or, you know, they're friendly and and we do these fun things and we get them into a community group. And and, and I start asking them like, how are they doing in community group? Well, they're just, they're they're showing up, they're faithful, but, but they're not really letting us in, right? Here's the thing, you guys, it takes time to learn to trust people. It takes time to learn to move into relationship with people, but it's non-negotiable, Well, I've been hurt. I know, me too. But it's uncomfortable. I get it. If you truly want to be set free from your bitterness, if you truly want to be given the gift of forgiveness, if you truly want to glorify God with the gift of grace, invite people in. Let people in. Sometimes the most powerful experiences in our community groups is when someone sits there in tears flowing. They share their story with us. And I have heard this more than once when they say, you are the first people I have ever told this to. And that is a great honor to be invited in, for them to feel safe enough and loved enough to invite us in. But you know what I love even more than that is that tells me grace has been working on their heart and has pushed them to the point where it's more uncomfortable to stay hidden than to come out. It is more uncomfortable to keep it bottled up and, and private and, and, and than it is to move it into the openness of loving and being loved, knowing and being known. Because the movement of the Spirit always pushes us into relationship.
the genuine effect of the gospel is never personal. It is corporate. He pushes us into the body, right? The body of Christ of which he is the head, in which the spirit of God flows like veins through the blood through the arteries, giving life. Community is non-negotiable. It's the path to increased freedom and joy and love and sanity. It is the path to God's glory and your good. Which means that sometimes you're going to have to fight to stay in community. You're going to have to fight to, to not hide and pull away. You're going to have to fight to be humble and honest. You're going to have to fight to forgive when someone says something insensitive, right? Because uh, there is no perfect community. It doesn't exist. We're all broken people coming together, fighting to experience grace together, which means sometimes we're going to hurt each other's feelings or we're going to say the insensitive thing or, or we're not going to say the encouraging thing when we had the opportunity to say it and we're going to feel it keenly when we open up and, and we share this secret that is so deep and powerful to us and, and it seems to not uh, receive the weightiness with which we give it. Here's the thing, you guys. We have to keep fighting to know and be known and love and be loved. Because the treasures that are unburied through that process in our hearts, in our experience, can be experienced no other way. It is the path to freedom. It is the path to joy. It is the path to to discovering all that is in us for the sake of Christ. We have some worship response cards in our bulletins. Um, and I would love for you to fill those out. If you have feedback for us, questions, um, thoughts, prayer requests, put them on there. Our leadership team looks over those every week. We pray over all the requests. If you want to grab a cup of coffee with one of our leaders, let us know. Um, we would love to meet with you, connect with you, and speak with you. You can drop those in the um, response boxes up front or by the doors um, at the end of the service. And... Um, and let us know. If you're a first-time guest with us, we would love it if you'd go ahead and visit our connection point. We have a gift for you. Um, we're not going to be weird, right? We're not going to follow you out of your car. We just want to say thanks um, and honor you for being our guest this morning, okay? All right, as we wrap up this morning, and as we wrap up in our study of the book of Philemon, um, instead of doing response questions, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my weird thing. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak a blessing over you. Now, if you're a guest with us, um, this is how we do it, Okay. You're going to cup your hands, and, uh, and you can bow your head. You don't have to look around, right? Just pretend you're the only one in the room. That's fine. Um, but the reason we cup our hands is it's just a physical way of saying, I'm receiving this blessing. It's mine. Okay? And as I speak this blessing over you, um, um, let it be yours. And when we get to the end, I'm going to say, and all God's people said, uh, and you're going to say, Amen. And amen is not just a religious word that we say at the end of prayers. Amen is a a Greek word that means let it be, or it is true, right? It's our way of saying, this is true of me. I receive this blessing. It is mine. And we take it and we wash it over us, okay? You don't have to participate. If you don't want to, feel free to to just sit and and, um, listen if if that's your choice. Um, But I want us to sit in the very last verse of this book. A lot of times you get to the end of a book like this, you read the verse and you're like, okay, done, moving on, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In this situation, you know that had to be a very, very weighty thing to say as he signed off.
He was sending Onesimus, the child that he loved, back into a situation that required grace. And he was counting on it. He was counting on the power of grace to free them into forgiveness and joy and not into bitterness, right? So let's, let's sit in this, you guys. All right, cup your hands. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Jesus knows you and he loves you. He lived for you and he died for you. And when he rose again, he did it for you. Your greatest debt has been paid. Your greatest problem has been solved. As you sit there this morning, believer in Christ, you sit accepted by God, loved by God, delighted in by God because of Jesus. This is grace the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Some of you have suffered deeply at the hands of others. Some of you are suffering deeply right now because the situation is far from over. You are not alone in your suffering. Jesus suffers with you. And there are people here who love you and will walk with you. They will be the presence of God's love to you the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Some of you are having a hard time releasing the debt of a past wound. You're having a hard time forgiving. You want to forgive and forget, but there is no forgetting. You don't need to forget. You need grace to release you from the bondage to your past to unchain you from that pain. You need to be like Philemon. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Some of you need to be forgiven. You are tasting grace and know that you need to go talk to that person or those people to confess, to repent, to seek forgiveness. You need to be like Onesimus. And you're afraid. And you need God's love to give you courage to be honest and humble. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We are all Philemon and need to forgive. We are all Onesimus and need to be forgiven. The grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. You guys take a few moments. We'll share communion in a moment.